We've done this in the past, but it's been a long while. So last month, I asked a number of people their favorite um, sayings from their mothers or their father or other family members if they uh, didn't know their moms. These were some of the replies that I got. Favorite mom sayings, what part of no don't you understand? I don't care who started it because I said so. That's why wait until your father gets home. Uh, your face is going to freeze like that. Get in the car. Get out of the car. Uh, this is my favorite. Your hands are not broken. No one said life is fair. Eat your dinner. Put your shoes on. Go to sleep. Those are fantastic. And let me share with you a few longer ones that I got. This is, this is brilliant. On our wedding day, my mother said to Mike and me, now if you and Mike are in a really bad fight and you want to move home, send Mike instead. Here's a really practical one. A great thing my mom said to me was lefty Lucy, righty tidy, and curling her index fingers and thumb, B is for bread, D is for drink. So when you're at a banquet, eat the bread to your left and take the drink to your right. Really good. And here's one more. Mother's number one expression, which we heard very often, was, I love you. Some of those actually make nice headlines as we dive into our text today. Obviously, some parents have been really influenced by the Apostle Paul. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 14. I think you'll see the similarity. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14 and read verses 1 through 5, starting in verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and above all that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another language is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the Spirit. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another language builds himself up, but he who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other languages, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in languages unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. Uh, in the center of your bulletin, you got a bulletin when you came in, open it up in the center, you'll see that we borrow some famous mom sayings to summarize this amazing text. Our first headline is actually from my mom. This is from my mommy. She said very often, if you have nothing constructive to share, stay quiet. All right? God's big idea here is the supremacy of prophecy. If you aren't prophesying in the church assembly, stay quiet. Now, what does that mean to Paul? As we noted earlier in the book, if you've been with us in 1 Corinthians, to prophesy in the New Testament usually depicts the ability to speak God's words. Quite frankly, it's the same or almost the same in the Old Testament. Remember, in the Old Testament, a prophet, we think of them as foretelling all the time. Less than 25% of prophetic activity was about foretelling the future. Over 75% of Old Testament prophecy is what I call forthtelling, which is taking God's Word and applying it to a culture, applying it to people's lives. When we get to the New Testament era after Jesus' resurrection, we find no one ever filling or holding the Old Testament office of prophet. John the baptizer was the last of those. And in the New Testament era, there are precious few examples of future prediction. Instead, the overwhelming majority of what's called prophecy in our New Testament was forthtelling done with the gift of prophecy. By the way, forthtelling still goes on today whenever Scripture is applied to culture. And that often gets the same harsh reaction that it did in ancient Israel. Now, scholars are divided on whether 1 Corinthians 14 is describing a spiritual gift of speaking God's new words to complete the canon of Scripture, or whether this is forthtelling. Given the context and what we're going to see in a moment about languages, I think it most likely this text is talking about forthtelling, the ability to apply Scripture to life. A number of you are very good at this. 
You're really good at that. And, and look at what Paul says. He says we should all try to grow in this. So let me give you an example. I've been doing a lot of study lately in Romans chapter 16. I've been spending a lot of time in there for a book I'm writing on. And, and so I want you to read with me Paul's last desire that's expressed in Romans 16. Uh, Romans 6, Romans 16, 19, sorry, uh, Romans 16, 19. Everybody read it with me, please, all together. I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good, yet innocent about what is evil. Wise about what is good, innocent about what is evil. Okay, let's prophesy. You have ideas, I know many of you do, you have ideas about how that Scripture applies to life. Remember, there's always one correct interpretation of Scripture, whether we know it or not. There are thousands of applications because they apply to every situation, every culture. So raise your hand and give me one way that this would apply to a life. How, how would that scripture apply to how we live? Somebody raise your hand and give me an example. How does this apply? Somebody, how would you apply it? Don't raise your mother's hand. Raise your own hand. It's pushing. That is not a Mother's Day gift. All right, uh, somebody, who's got one? Come on. Come on. I'm going to call on you people. I know you. Yes, what do you got? Yeah, this is how you this is how you parent. This is why you don't you don't show R-rated movies to kids because then you're not going to be innocent about what is evil. Oh, everybody knows that. No, no, they don't, and you don't need to. Sorry. Yeah, very good. What else? How do you apply it? Yeah. What's that? Yes, that's right. At the marriage altar. Very nice. Perfect application. Like that. What else? Give me another one. Yes. Be sensitive about what you say around people. You want to show that you're wise about what is good and, uh, and not get the cheap laugh with the crass stuff and, and show that you're innocent about what's it. Those are pre- Thank you. All, give my friends a hand for prophesying. That was very nice. Good prophecy. That is prophesying. Now, the other side of Paul's contrast is language. Let's discuss the reality of languages. Sadly, many people trip up here in this text by, by not doing their homework. Um, the, the Greek glousa, uh, the word that we translate tongues actually means known languages. Uh, historic language scholars, uh, Moulton and Milligan, put it this way. Glousa means normal human language, local peculiarities of speech, or a physical tongue. So whenever you see it, that's the range of meaning. Another uh, famous scholar, Robert Gundry, puts it this way. The Greek translation of the Old Testament always used the word glousa to refer to human language, sometimes to a nation in the sense of a language unit. Glousa occurs 114 times in the canonical books and never once means unintelligible speech. It always refers to the tongue itself or to speech, known speech. Close quote. I like that one so much I put it in your notes. I think maybe the best summary comes from a guy named Costi Hinn. Costi's a fascinating guy. He left a weird movement that tried to make Glausa mean something other than known language. You may have heard of his uncle, whose name is Benny. Um, uh, after going to seminary and becoming a pastor, Costi Hinn wrote this. The clear position of scholars is that all biblical tongues, Glausa, refers to a language and not some form of ecstatic speech or unintelligible groaning, close quote. To illustrate this and what language means, my friend Jose is going to join me on stage. Jose, come on out. Uh, okay, Jose, take it away and greet the group in a glousa. Buenos días a todos y feliz día a las madres. Spanish. Uh, how about Italian? Uh, buongiorno a tutti e buona festa della mamma. Awesome. Portuguese, Portuguese. Uh, bon dia a todos e feliz dia das mães. Okay, uh, French. Uh, bonjour a tous e bon fête de la mère. 
Catalan. Bon dia a todos y feliz dia de las mares. Brilliant. Uh, English, might as well. Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. Give him a hand. Isn't that amazing? Fantastic. That's what he said. Good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day in English, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, French, and Catalan. Oh, did we do? Yeah, we did Italian. Okay. Um, now, how many, but I'm just curious. How many of you recognized you, you knew two of those, that you could speak two of those languages? You could understand two of them. Okay. How many of you, three? Three of the six languages you got. Okay. Four? Yeah, you got Spanish, Portuguese, English. That's yours. Yeah. Uh, four. We had somebody did four less. He speaks all six of those fluently. It's frightening. Um, <laughs> But, but, as talented as Jose is, look at your text. Only God can speak all tongues. That's why somebody edifying the church in a language the people don't know is fairly worthless. Only God understands it. Better by far to prophesy in a language people can grasp. Of course, I know, I know what you are asking in your mind, in your own um, terrible Spanish accent. You're saying, but pastor, what about chapter 13 where Paul mentions tongues of angels? Great question. Thank you for asking. Here's the answer. There is no, Danny Trejo's awesome. There is no, there is no human who knows an angelic tongue. In fact, this text is saying just that. Let, let, let me show you. There are three couplets in verses one and two. This is, a, this is a standard classical Greek kind of prose. It's very beautiful. And Paul borrows a really old-fashioned classical Greek prose to, to point this out. The first one is you can do one thing. You can speak in tongues of men. You can't do the other thing, speaking an angel glaucia. He goes on with two others. You can have the gift of prophecy. You can, I can give all my possessions. I can't have faith so as to move mountains. I, I can't have all faith. I'm limited as a human. I can't surrender my body to be burned. Now, the can't there is a little tough in English. The key is in Greek. The Greek word surrender that is used here is a, is a verb that means to do something very unreasonable, very foolish that is forbidden by God. If you're a fan of Tolkien, Okay, think of Denethor throwing himself on the funeral pyre and how wrong that was. That's, that's what surrender there means, okay? Now, with each of these, the point is love. Love is what matters. That's the context. Hypothetical exaggerations, powerful, attainable tasks, they're all alike in this. Every one of them indicate that service to Jesus is useless without love. Thus, there is no way that God is telling people to speak in some angelic language unless he's also telling them to practice self-immolation, to throw themselves on a fire, Right? It, it can't be. So, back to chapter 14. When someone speaks in another language, he may well be sharing great insights to the mysteries revealed in God's Word, but no one can understand it because of his foreign language. Therefore, Paul foreshadows my mommy, and he says, if you have nothing constructive to share, say nothing at all. Now, let's read the next section. Chapter uh, 14, verse 6. But now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in other languages, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even inanimate things that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. All have meaning. Therefore, I do not, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker. Key word foreigner. We'll come back to that. And the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, 
The person who speaks in another language should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another language, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I'll pray with the spirit. I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with the spirit. I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, if, if you praise with the spirit, how will the uninformed person say amen at your giving of thanks since he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other languages more than all of you, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another language. Top the right side of your notes, you'll find our next headline. This is actually another one of my mom's favorite words. Enunciate. Enunciate, for goodness sake. The illustration Paul uses is fantastic. He points out that with musical instruments, indistinct notes are grating. I was showing my brilliant violinist friend Mikey here my grandmother's violin. Uh, this was something my grandmother willed to me. She left to me. She thought she was leaving me millions of dollars because inside it says made by Antonio Stradivarius, but it's a fake. Um, it's still worth quite a bit, but it was, they made a lot of fakes in the late 19th century. But if I, if I decide to take out my old violin and play without any fingering or any attention to the notes, how's that sound? Do you know... It's beautiful, right? I heard, I, heard, I heard an entire symphonic piece like that once. I was in Stockholm, and uh, I was at their beautiful, uh, beautiful place they have by the river. They've got a really gorgeous uh, concert hall. It's right on the harbor uh, as the river comes into the bay. And, um, and they were playing a lot of very difficult pieces that day. I was very excited about the concert. Um, there were a lot of difficult parts, including one by Brian Fernieho. I'd never heard of Brian Fernieho, so I was excited to hear his music. This is what I heard. It went on like that for 25 minutes. <laughs> 25 minutes. It just kept going and going. At the intermission, thank God there was an intermission. At the intermission, some very nice Swedish man was striking up a conversation with me in the lobby, and he said, my, wasn't that for any home music remarkable? And I said, the only remark I can think about is it wasn't music, and it made absolutely no sense. And he said, yeah, I thought so too. Um, <laughs> now, to be fair, in his classes at Stanford, Professor Herniho teaches at Stanford, and he says in his classes that his music makes sense, but only to himself. That's what he says. Well, it makes sense to me. That's not communication. Passion is great. Gifting and talent are great, but not when the product can't be understood. And that's exactly Paul's point in our text. Corinth, think about Corinth. This is the crossroads of the world. So many languages are spoken at this very, very populous place. But when Christians come into church there and they prattle on in some language other than Greek, they're making indistinct, grating noises that make sense only to themselves and to God. It's not edifying. And God isn't impressed because unclear words are useless for building up his church. In fact, get this. God declares that one is either a barbarian or a builder. It's a binary issue. You, you probably noticed the recurring idea in this chapter, building up of God's church, right? Well, verses 11 and 12 lay out its stark contrast. You can either be a barbarian or a builder. The, seriously, those are the words God uses here. Barbaros is the common Greek word for anyone who is uncivilized. It, obviously, it came into English as what word? What did it come in English as? 
Barbarian, yeah. And not, and not in the cool Conan-like way. This, this, is, this is uncouth, incomprehensible, and get this, barbaros means dedicated to tearing down civilization. Horrifying. By contrast, oikodome is a, is a verbal about construction. It's what a home builder does. Bob the builder, yes, he can. That's, that's oikodome, right? And, and in this sense, especially intelligible teaching on God's words, those understandable words become the building blocks of life. And these two words have a lot to say to our current culture. You've probably noticed, on the one hand, we are awash with deconstructionism today. Here's my definition of deconstructionism. It is a movement of small-minded people who hopelessly attempt to find meaning by tearing down anything that makes sense. These are the trolls. These are the people who sue others because of imagined insults. Uh, the ones who want other people to remain impoverished so the trolls can feel better about themselves according to their made-up morality. In a word, they are barbarians. Again, this is all about words. Uh, that's why I think Michael Schneider, a, a writer, summarized modern America really well. He said this, the goal of these thought Nazis is to control what people say to one another. It's all about words because eventually that will shape what most people think and what most people believe. Close quote. Isaiah warned about all this 2,500 years ago. Did you know that? Isaiah gave us a lot of instruction about deconstructionists. Look, here's what he said. He said, those who, describing these, these trolls, with their speech, it's about words, accuse a person of wrongdoing. I don't have time to show it, but the whole context is about how there is no wrong. These, these people are not wrong, but they accuse them of wrongdoing, and then they set a trap in the gate for the mediator. Let me just make sure you understand that. Have you ever tried with a deconstructionist, somebody who's always against things, always offended, always turning things out? Have you ever tried to mediate with them? Oh, you know, they must be reasonable. All people are reasonable. Let me, let me just talk to them. Let me, how does that go? Yeah, they eat you for lunch. Yeah, all right. They set a trap in the gate for the mediator and without cause deprive the righteous of justice. All right, barbarians. By contrast, oikodome is building up. This is the opposite of barbarism. It is using your words to build other people up. In, in this case, to build up the church of Jesus. It is to be literally constructive in your speech. Constructionists always are known by the things they are for, right? Deconstructionists are only known by what they're against. Constructionists are known by what they're building up. Isaiah spoke to this too. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 21. So my word, God speaks, that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I please. Accomplish there is a word that means build, and it will prosper in what I send it to do. God is a builder, not a barbarian. Okay, so let's zoom in from the culture to our own personal lives. Interpret, says God. Be clear so other people can understand. Are you clear? I mean, think about it. Do you intelligibly speak God's truth as part and parcel of your life? Uh, my old mentor, <clears throat> Dr. Wimp, painfully applied this text to me regarding my vocabulary. One time we were having lunch and he told me to stop speaking so much in my normal vocabulary. I bristled. I, I, did, I became defensive, and I said, I don't, I don't purposefully use esoteric terms. I'm not trying to be indistinct. I just, I just instinctively grab for whatever is the best word for the situation. And he listened to me, and then he said, well, <clears throat> if that's your instinct, son, your instincts stink. It's not the best word if nobody else gets it, is it? Ouch. Good point. That's not really communication, is it? Are you clear in what you say and write? And what about the goal of your speaking? You know, most people today, have you noticed this? Most people today, this is horrible, but most of the conversations you and I have throughout a week are with people who are trying to score points or they are trying to record other people's words so they can use them later in an attack. 
What about us? Do, do our words build up? Remember Solomon's great description? He talked about words that build up, oikodome, by saying, apples of gold in settings of silver. That, is that us? Is that our speech? Or are we deconstructionists more than we really think? Remember verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. The person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, for encouragement, and consolation. A friend of mine wrote me a note about this recently, and he said, Wayne, regretfully, I find that I'm mostly focused on myself, not so much what will benefit others and be for their edification, encouragement, and consolation. Lord, help us. We resemble that remark, don't we? May God grow us up. All God's people said? Amen. And by the way, growing up is the point of the next section. Go to verse 20. Verse 20, brothers, brethren, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law. This is from Isaiah. Isaiah, a lot about words in Isaiah. I will speak to these people by people of other languages and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It follows that speaking in other languages is intended as a sign, but not for believers, but for unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for the believers. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other languages and people who are uninformed or unbelievers come in, will they not say, you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he's convicted by all, is judged by all, the secret of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. Stop there. As a mother would say, act your age. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 is one of two remarkable verses in the Bible that give an incredible primer on how to grow up well. The other is Luke 2.52, by the way. Look, look, there's four steps in how to grow up well, according to verse 20. Brethren, that's the first thing. You want to grow up rightly? Recognize first and foremost you are part of a family. You are not some radical free agent. You're not. Second, don't be childish in thought. What does that mean? Childish in thought. Any parents here ever read the same book over and over and over, night after night after night at your kid's bedtime? Same book. Anybody ever experienced that? They want the same book every night, right? Now, that's really not bad. Here's why little kids want that, especially in the two- and three-year-old range. They want that because that repetition of doing the same thing is really helping them develop language. The, the words, the sounds being the same all the time is, is benefiting them, and it's great for them. The problem is mom and dad are going absolutely out of their minds, right? Which is why Calvin's dad changes the words to the story, right? You can only hear Hamster Huey and the Gooey Kablooey so many times before you lose your marbles. It's not that there's anything wrong with Madeline. It's wonderful. You just, you just want something adult for a change. That's why when you're finished with bedtime, you walk out and you say things like, if I don't talk to an adult for a while, if I don't read something not written by Disney, I am going to, to blow my brains out. You, you're absolutely going crazy, right? Act your age. Third, to grow up, be naive regarding evil. Now, note, look at the words. Notice the difference in terms. In regard to evil, we're to be napiadso. Napiazo means immature. It means, it means an undeveloped infant without understanding. Uh, naive is a, a pretty good translation. But in regard to our thinking, we're meant to grow out of childishness, okay? The Greek for childishness is a form of paideon. Um, paideon is a word for a child who is not yet trained. It, it, um, outside the Bible, it's used fairly often for teenagers who are goofing around because they don't have enough to do. They don't have enough training in their life. So to grow up well, we need to stop goofing and mature. We need to quit goofing off. And we need to especially stop being so well-educated in evil, had a young pastor in my office for tea recently. I really like this guy. He, he wants to be a great leader for the Lord. I enjoyed him. And I, I spent a long time just listening to his hopes and his fears and his dreams. It was, it was great. After a time, I just listened to him for a while, and then he looked up 
And he said, hey, do you have any suggestions? What would you suggest for me to be successful? And, and I quoted this verse. I took him to this verse, and I said to him this. I said, you mentioned a few times that you don't really like to read. I'm concerned about that because I'm concerned about your ability to grow up your thinking. And you also showed extensive knowledge of really ugly topics. And I think you might want to be a little more naive there. Gently but firmly, I told him this. I said, you may be too much like all the rest of humanity, goofing around with foolish things and not diving into good things. If you do that with food and drink, you get ill. You do it with ideas, and your maturity is stunted. Be naive regarding evil, wise in maturity. Fourth, in verse 20, to grow up well, think maturely. Now, maturely, some of your translations say perfectly. It's a form of the Greek teleos. Teleos means to reach the right conclusion, to, to grow into what is intended. This is a Schumard red oak. Uh, if you plant these in Texas, most parts of Texas, they grow to 70 feet tall. That's the teleos is 70 feet tall. You might want to take that in mind before you plant one right next to the Broderick's backyard up against their fence. Anyway, just a thought. Um, <laughs> We're supposed to tell us we have something God has for us to grow into. But, but tragically, horribly, most people never reach maturity. In, in, in fact, they stop so short of their intended teleos that in our culture, what is abject and unbelievably immature is labeled as for mature audiences. It, it's absolutely absurd. Unlike all of Corinth around us, we need to reach real maturity, and that maturity is needed so we can focus on God and people. Since Isaiah spends so much time on words, Paul quotes that prophet to demand the next thing, quit being self-centered. When I teach in other places, uh, I don't know about you when you travel, but I, I want to hear everything in my language. I want every word to be translated so that I, uh, so that I don't get left out of anything, and, and actually unconsciously... I, I demand that all of my brethren, when I go teach at other churches around the world, that they be bilingual instead of me so that I can understand them. But I know this is shocking. Life's not all about me. This text says I'm actually on this earth to build other people up. So when I'm in a church in Africa or Scandinavia or Panama, I, I need to rejoice that they're speaking the language those people know. It's good for those believers even if I am left out. Now, this is so cool. Look at this. Here's, here's a modern take on what Paul is saying. When, when I get up to speak at those churches, when I get up to speak, my words are translated, right? Now, when that happens, this is fascinating. It, I think this has happened every single time I've spoken anywhere. There is some highly educated person in the audience who knows English, knows it well. These people are almost always non-Christians. They don't want anything. They think they are way too wealthy or too smart to need Christ. But they come because they're intrigued that an American professor has come to speak at this church, right? So they come in. Here's what happens. Nearly every time they trust Jesus as Savior at that meeting. You see, the two-language setup allows for that English speaker to respond to God's truth, and all the other language people are, are growing as well. If I self-centeredly demand to speak in my language without translation, it might reach that one English speaker, but it's going to do nothing for all those other people for whom my tongue is only so much babble, right? We need to act our age. We need to grow up well and think about other people and stop being so self-centered. All God's people said... Now, our last section is titled with one of my sweetheart's parenting phrases. This is one of Jana's phrases, share and play nicely. Heard that a lot in our home. Go to verse 26, share and play nicely. What then is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification, means building up. If any person speaks in another language, there should only be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and someone must interpret. 
But if there's no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so everyone may learn, everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are under control of the prophets. Don't say God made me do this. Sorry, I added that. Under control of the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of what, everybody? Peace. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church meeting. Did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in other languages, but everything must be done decently and in order. Two big ideas in this concluding text. First, each one is ready to serve and to share. When you come together, each of you is ready to sacrifice for the edification of all. How different is that from our typical attitude? Okay, more than anywhere else in the world, people in my country, in America, assume that the church gathering is about them. It is about them as an individual. If I don't like something, I write a nasty complaint letter. Or if I don't like something, I take my marbles and go home, right? That's what we do. Now, let me say this. We are very blessed in this home church. Frankly, I receive far fewer complaints than any pastor I know. I don't know, maybe you don't have email. I don't know what it is, but um, I think actually, I think it speaks to your grasp of verse 26, and it's very impressive. But still, but still, you and I aren't off the hook on this. We still struggle with this, don't we? Not just other people. You and I struggle with this. Now, we're not talking here about doctrine. We're not talking about things that are eternal. We're talking about being bothered by the paint color or the lack of your favorite music, or cultural appropriation, or whatever the offense of the day is. That's what this is talking about. And when we stomp out a fellowship for that, when we stomp out, it never even crosses our minds that maybe we were supposed to be so busy edifying others that we had no time to be bothered by our own preferences. The rest of the passage deals with order. All is to be orderly so we can play nicely together. In my experience, this one seems to be more of a problem outside of America. Let me just tell you what I've seen just in my little life. I, in church services, I have seen screaming, loud screaming, uh, interrupting teaching, saying the same phrase over and over and over without a break over 50 times. I counted um, I've seen that actually a few times. Babbling, wild babbling that means nothing. I have seen people passing out, uh, making animal noises as a part of worship. Paul says... Stop that! S-T-O-P, new word, I-T, right? He calls for order. Look, evaluation, thought, deferring to others. Please don't misunderstand. He is not outlawing emotion. God forbid. God made emotion. But Paul is calling for worship to be orderly as befits a God of order. This is God's word, and it is very clear. Listen, we must not throw rocks at our wonderful brethren. Who I've, who I've worshipped with in all those places where I told you about the weird, that we don't throw rocks. Those are our family. However, neither should we excuse abject violation of God's word that pretends it is God's way of worship. It is not. Of course, the paragraph on females in the worship assembly, that gets the most attention today. I taught ex extensively on this in our First Timothy series not too long ago, so I'm not going to go into much detail today. Let me just say this. There are two reactions to this text that are very loud and both very wrong. 
There are nuances, but for time's sake, I'm going to use generalizations. I think these are fair generalizations. One extreme takes this text out of context and basically declares that females are second-class citizens. That's what they do. They, they ignore the earlier statements in this very book about male and female equality. They ignore the idea of orderly worship, which is the immediate context. And thus, they wrongly conclude that women are not really fully parts of God's church. They only matter if they are married with a Christian husband. Now, let me say this. Some people in this large camp uh, may not see females as lesser per se. I want to be fair to them. But what they do is they take this passage and, and one other passage, and, they, and they, they take out the worship assembly context. That's the context is, is this gathering, the worship assembly. And you know what they do? They declare that no female is ever to teach any male in any place at any time. I only have one word for that. Absurd. That is an absurd violation of God's word. The second inaccuracy is historically a reaction to the first one. That's where you most often see it. Uh, this says there are no set roles for males or females in, in the church. Uh, they'll even say in the home either. The, the instruction they'll say for Corinth that we just read, it's limited by time and space. Uh, today, this is how it's put. It's part of a trajectory that God is slowly changing. This is also absurd. They ignore the earlier context that describes male and female roles, that there are different contributions in the home and in the church. They take this out of context. In fact, sometimes they take this right out of the Bible. I'm not trying to be mean when I say that it's absurd, but it is. Listen, listen carefully. There are three roles, only three, mentioned in the New Testament regarding males and females in the local church. Just three. One, females are expressly called to disciple less mature women. Very clear command, given two different times. A few males are expressly called to serve as elders. Undeniable masculine language. Third one, males are to teach or prophesy in the assembly, this gathering, which is the point of 1 Corinthians 14. Let me tell you just one reason why this second reaction to 1 Corinthians 14 is so off base. They never, never will you hear in this day and age the first of these roles uh, called for abolition. You never hear that. You never hear the, that one. You only hear these two should be abolished because of cultural pressure at the time in which we live. This is God's word, and it is very clear. Listen, we must not throw rocks at our wonderful brethren who live in these two extremes. They are our family. However, neither should we excuse abject violation of God's word that pretends it is God's way of worship. It is not. Of course, you are sitting there thinking in your awful French accent, thank goodness we are never like that, <laughs> right? We never act disorderly. No, no, not us. Not us people at Frisco Bible Church. We always share and defer to other people. We never twist scripture to fit our desires or the demands of culture. Ah, mon ami. <laughs> but we are guilty of those same errors, aren't we? In our own ways, we are. So how about we stop talking about other people and ask God to convict us and grow us up. Amen? Pray with me about that. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you to mature me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are far, far away from the innocence toward evil that you call us to. And we pray that we can be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are far too immature in good. We we have an inveterate tendency, as all people do, to take Scripture and try and apply it in a way we like, twist its meaning, instead of letting your Holy Spirit convict us. Father, we thank you that you can convict us about the other-centeredness that is the critical issue in worship. You care so much about people, you want us to care about them, even as we worship.
I, I thank you for the offering we're about to take. It's a perfect picture of this, that, that, we, that we are sacrificing what you've given us for the good of the whole, for the good of your church. And I pray this is for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.